Before we get started, I just have a few very quick announcements. First, we have our first Spring Gala on May 22nd at 4.30 uh, Central Time. So if you're interested uh, in that, it's a free event streaming on YouTube, and then we'll have a social hour over Zoom afterwards. So if that sounds good to you, it's just uh, some music and some comedy and some artistry and some memories of colleagues. If you're interested in that, there will be a link in the show notes. Uh, our Jungian Psychotherapy Program and Jungian Studies Program, both of those programs are open for enrollment right now, and you can do the whole application online. Um, all of that is on our website. And uh, finally, we have our spring fundraising drive going on right now, which is why I'm doing one episode, one podcast episode a week, rather than you know one or two a month, as we usually do. Uh, it's just to do a little bit extra for uh, everyone in the community. And we're grateful for everyone who can support us and help make everything that we do possible, this podcast and everything else. We recently received a matching grant gift for $3,000 uh, from Carl and Patricia Greer. So if we can raise uh, $3,000 by May 30th, we will receive an extra $3,000 gift. So you can essentially double your giving if you make a donation to the Institute before then. Um, we're currently 35% of the way there to the matching grant, um, so around $1,200. So we're pretty close, uh, but we do need a little help to get there. So if you can give, please do. Um, any amount really does help. And if you're interested in something in the store, uh, perhaps from this episode or another one, um, please go ahead and make a purchase as that also helps. Thanks. Changing God Image, What Does It Mean? with Murray Stein, Ph.D. This episode is the first part of the series, A Changing God Image, What Does It Mean? from the series description. In this program, Murray Stein addresses four questions. What is a God image? What does a God image change? How does a God image change? And what does it mean when a God image changes? The recommended readings for this, if you're interested in looking at those, are Answer to Job and The Symbolic Life, both by C.G. Young. Um, there's a link to purchase Answer to Job if you're interested, and The Symbolic Life is in Volume 8 of the Collected Works. It was recorded in 2003. Murray Stein, Ph.D., is a training analyst at the International School for Analytical Psychology in Zurich, Switzerland. His publications include The Principle of Individuation, Jung's Map of the Soul, and the Edinburgh International Encyclopedia of Psychoanalysis, for which he is the editor of the Jungian sections. He lectures internationally on topics related to analytical psychology and its applications in the contemporary world. Dr. Stein is a graduate of Yale University, the University of Chicago, and the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich. 
He's a founding member of the Interregional Society of Union Analysts and the Chicago Society of Union Analysts. He has been the president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and is presently a member of the Swiss Society for Analytical Psychology and president of the International School of Analytical Psychology, Zurich. Before I get to the lecture, I just want to read another listener submission. Steve from Australia says, I'm a bit lost on my journey at present, but hoping podcasts like this may help shed some light on the path ahead. I'm a psychiatric nurse and have worked in an acute community setting for about 25 years. I find Jungian psychology to be useful in both my personal life and in my workplace. Thank you to everyone who has shared a little bit about themselves, and if you'd like to do so, you can click the link in the show notes. You can support this free podcast by making a donation, becoming a member of the Institute, or making a purchase in our online store. Your support enables us to provide free and low-cost educational resources to all. Uh, There will be a link to purchase the complete series, of which this lecture is the first part, in the show notes, as well as links to all of Dr. Stein's lectures on our website, as well as a link to his own website. Now let's get to the lecture. Our plan for the day will be, uh, uh, what I've got here is in four pieces, and I will uh, give you them one at a time with some discussion between them. Okay, so they're like four chapters or four sections. And um, we'll uh, do the first two before lunch, and then we'll take a, an hour or hour and 15 minutes for a break and then come back. And we'll stop when we're ready to stop. We don't have to go until four. We certainly won't go over four. But uh, if we're through at three or 3.15, that's fine, too. Um, Let me just give you a little background on what I've got here. Um, A couple of years ago, I was asked by an organization in England called the Guild for Pastoral Psychology to um, give a lecture at their annual meeting at Oxford. And this organization has been going in England since the late 1930s. And actually, Jung gave a a big paper, uh, historically speaking, big. At the time, it was very informal. He just talked. People asked him questions, and that that was um, The Symbolic Life, which is very interesting to read. It's in volume 18 of the Collected Works. Um, he gave it in English extemporaneously, and it was recorded and then published. And um, it's really, I think, one of the best introductions to Jung's uh, um, approach to the whole subject of meaning, uh, spirituality, uh, the living symbol, all that kind of thing that we're so familiar with in Jung's other works. Um, Anyway, the Guild for Pastoral Psychology has been going for a long time, and they do an annual conference. And um, so I was asked to uh, give something, and I chose this topic um, called Changing God Images, What Do They Mean? So I wasn't wanting to focus so much on the changing, what it's changing into, as what does it mean when a God image changes? That question. Okay, what's going on, in other words? What, 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 how can we think about that? And so um, it's divided into four chapters, as I say, and I'll um, just uh, jump into it. And uh, so if you want to just 
kind of carefully listen while I do this, then we'll, when I'm finished with the first part, we can have some discussion and take a little break, and then we'll do the second part, same, and then have lunch and so on. Okay? Is that, that okay for the day? Okay, let me start with a quote uh, from uh, an interview that a man named Lewis uh, had with Jung in his very late years. He went to Kisnacht and was invited to go out to Jung's house and uh, spent an hour or so with him and got to ask him some questions. And uh, Jung, now kind of elderly and sick and uh, close to his final uh, departure, um, gave a very interesting interview, which was published just a couple of years ago in the uh, San Francisco Jung Institute Library Journal. And I just pick out one brief sentence from that, where Jung says, religion is following the hints from God. <laughs> and Jung had a way of making pithy comments like that. Uh, but what a definition of religion that is. Huh? Religion is following the hints from God. <clears throat> so, let me start. Evidence that God images can and do change over time has been widely available since the advent of historical consciousness, which, which isn't actually so old. What I mean by historical consciousness is thinking historically, which probably began in the 18th century or so, that people actually, what we call historical consciousness now, uh, began. The advent of historical consciousness and the detailed scholarly reconstruction of the past took hold. And this topic of changing God images has occupied some thinkers, at least in the West, for a couple of centuries now. Now, whether they saw the change as bad and a sign of decay or deterioration from a former purity, and there are those who, who see the changes decline. For instance, Adolf Harnack, the famous German uh, church historian in the 19th century commented critically on the Hellenization of Christian theology in the early centuries of the Common Era. In other words, as, it, as Christianity from its Aramaic roots entered the Hellenistic world, it got philosophized and theologized, and you can see that as a loss of essential, you know, gripping, immediate meaning as it becomes more and more abstract, and that's the way he looked at it that uh, Christianity really lost quite a lot uh, in that transition. Or you, uh, whether you see it as evolutionary and a sign of development and maturation, which is the way some theologians have looked at it. For instance, John Henry Cardinal Newman, famous English Roman Catholic convert in the 19th century, um, wrote about the evolution of Christian doctrine. So he saw it as, a, as a, an, an unfolding development. Or whether you see it as a confirmation that God images are indeed illusions and mostly are bent to the service of non-religious motives of one kind or another. And that's why they change, because the underlying manipulations of society are changing. And that's the way Feuerbach, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud saw religion as an illusion driven by other uh, needs and desires and factors, social or psychological, and that's what would be behind these changes. The item of change in God images generally and in the 
God image of Western religion specifically, and the resulting consequent changes in culture and religious sensibility and outlook have been widely noted and intensively discussed. So this has been on the agenda for quite a long time. In recent decades, this issue has become especially acute due to the greatly increased interest in including feminine images of the divine in biblical, theological reflections, and even doctrines. So as uh, this is very familiar ground to all of you, this, all this goddess talk and conversation that began basically in the 60s, 70s, reached a climax in the 80s, and has now sort of declined or become extremely controversial. But it did have an impact on some areas of Christian theology, particularly in the Protestant church, where the liberal Protestant denominations at least have made a great attempt to change the language of prayers to, to make it uh, inclusive rather than he, him, all the time. You know, they've changed the language of the prayer book and so on. Um, also has put pressure on the Roman Catholic Church to consider, which it's doing in some quarters, consider the... the um, inclusion of women in the priesthood and, and or various functions of authority in the church. Uh, this whole issue has really put a lot of, uh, let's say, heat under the subject of changing God images. But the theological issue is, can one think reasonably of God as not just a father image? You know, is there a, a father-mother or masculine-feminine uh, image that would be possible. And that would be a revision of the God image that's been, you know, in the biblical tradition pretty much since the, since the outset, since Moses at the burning bush and so on, uh, formulated uh, or experienced a certain kind of God image. Now the question of what such changes might mean, both theoretically, that is, theologically, philosophically, and scientifically, and practically, and that would be psychologically, sociologically, religiously, when God images change, the question of what it might mean is critical and largely unresolved in the minds of most contemporary thinkers. It is a question that unanswered can cause grave disorientation and anxiety. If as permanent a cultural object as a God image is subject to change and mutation. What is stable? Is there no fixed and intact foundation that people can rely on anymore? In other words, the foundations are shaking. Is there no rock of ages? Is everything in flux? And if so, where might we be headed? Can we detect patterns, a, a direction perhaps, where this change is moving? These are some of the questions raised from the realization that God images are subject to change. <coughs> Uncertainties abound. And modern people were made anxious by this state of affairs. The famous uh, age of anxiety was the feeling tone of modernity, as it was called. Uh, and now we have what's called postmodern sensibilities. Uh, and Mostly, while moderns have felt anxiety, postmoderns have celebrated. They love change, and it has, basically has no meaning. Just celebrate it. It's, it's all a, a charade anyway, and lots of fun, and enjoy it while it's happening. The lights will go out someday, and that's that, folks. <laughs> that's the sort of the postmodern sensibility. 
Now, Jung picked up on this theme of the changing God image in his writings, and he developed it in several very interesting, I believe, directions. I will review some of his ideas here, and I will use them to grapple with this issue of what does a changing God image mean. The origins of Jung's profound interest in theology and the history, in, in the history of religions can be traced back into his early years in college already, and in, in his biography even earlier than that, but he gave uh, what has been become known as the Zofingia Lectures as, a, as an undergraduate at the University of Basel, and these have been published now. Um, and in those, he, is, he takes up some subjects like uh, where theology is going. He reviews some theological ideas of that period. The theology of ritual was one of his subjects. And um, also he uh, proposes a kind of scientific, a scientific uh, investigation an account of religious experience that religion shouldn't be excluded from, that is the experience of religion, the practice of religion, shouldn't be excluded from science. It should be brought in and studied, which is, unbeknownst to him, exactly what William James was doing at that particular time in the 1890s, William James' varieties of religious experience, um, uh, which Jung discovered later when he met William James, actually. And then in his first major psychological work, uh, the psychology, in English it's known as the psychology of the unconscious, uh, there's a lot of discussion of uh, uh, history of religions and God images and so on. Now these interests were considerably expanded later in his life as he gained experience and depth in several of the works of his mature period and old age, for instance, in a book, Ion, and uh, famously in answer to Job, which is one of his great theological expressions, he bears down intensively on the question of a changing God image in Western religion, both historically and in modern times and projecting into the future. Some of his keenest observations on this subject were expressed in his correspondence, uh, letters that he spent a great deal of time on. At one point, a publisher came to him. Uh, this was in the 1950s sometime, and Anila Yaffe was his secretary, and the publisher wanted to publish a selection of his letters. And immediately, Jung said to Anila Yaffe, well, get out the Pfarrerbriefen, the, the, the letters I've written to ministers. And he had collected them, actually, in a separate folder. Uh, and he spent a lot of time on these letters. Um, they're very, uh, uh, I would say, thoughtful and profound. In fact, Edward Edinger um, wrote a book a few years ago called The New God Image, in which he comments on several of the key letters in Jung's extensive correspondence with theologians and clergy. While Edinger's summary of Jung's views in that book is partial, it's also central, and I recommend that book to you if you are interested in reading some more on this subject, The New God Image, Edward Edinger. And this book and others of Edinger's many writings provide a useful basis for extending a Jungian reflection along the lines I'll propose in these talks. So in what follows, I want to ask four questions and attempt to answer them. And this is the outline of the four chapters. 
What is a God image? It's the first one. The second, why does a God image change? The third, how does a God image change? And the fourth, what does it mean when a God image changes? The questions are linked and revolve around the central hermeneutical problem, a changing God image, what does it mean? The answers to these questions that I've asked here, these four questions, derive principally, my answers derive principally from Jung's understanding of the human psyche and its relation to what religions call deity or God. Speaking from a psychological angle. So first, what is a God image? Now, God images come in many sizes, shapes, and flavors. And there are thousands of them. Uh, to consider them, one must include the material ones, such as statues, icons, paintings, and other what were called in the Old, Old Testament graven images. And also, one must include the literary ones, the literary God images as described in sacred scriptures and theological texts. A brief survey of world religions will yield a list of scores of God images, and an extensive survey would reveal hundreds or even thousands. A God image appears whenever people attempt to describe or give definition to what uh, Rudolf Otto called the mysterium tremendum, the numinosum. And this is what we commonly call God, the tremendous <coughs> mystery, not a little mystery, but a great big one. And whenever people try to give definition to this or describe an experience of it, we get a God image. The cluster of attributes ascribed to God defines the God image under consideration. Even a God like the biblical Yahweh, who himself famously forbids graven images and remains invisible and transcendent, only one person ever saw God face to face, and that was Moses, according to the Bible. Although Job hears a long discourse from God, I don't think he sees him directly. Um, nevertheless, even though God remains invisible and transcendent in the Bible, the God image received definition in such attributes as father, creator, sustainer, and so forth. Well, many of the God images found among world religions have similar features but differ in detail and nuance depending on the social and theological context in which they are embedded. For instance, there are father gods and mother goddesses. So one can categorize and cluster them. There are savior gods. There are sky gods and goddesses. There are earth and underworld deities. So categorization of them is possible and often instructive. Now, in addition to the God images based and rooted in religious traditions, in the big traditions, there are still others to be found in the dreams and visions of individuals, because individuals do 
create God images or experience God images in their dreams and visions occasionally. And generally, individuals keep them private or perhaps share them with a chosen few people. It isn't something one goes around talking about too much for fear of getting locked up <laughs> if you start spouting that kind of stuff. People think you're crazy. <clears throat> uh, and these personal and private God images may have qualities similar to those that are enshrined by cultures, and some of them can be similarly typed and categorized. Now, what are these multitudinous God images essentially? Can we define a God image? Here's my attempt. A God image is a numinous symbol that claims for itself absolute and cosmic standing. A God image is a numinous symbol that claims for itself absolute and cosmic standing. You don't have to claim it for the God image. It insists on it itself. It's more than just an impressive image of an ego ideal or inflated fantasy of power, ego power. In Jungian terms, it's an image of the self rather than of the ego, the God image. For some God images, a claim is made for its superiority over all others and even for its exclusiveness. For instance, in the monotheisms, there's only one God. And the rest are dismissed as illusions or um, vain attempts or something. But certainly this isn't always the case. Some religions contain and hold up many God images. They don't insist that one is dominant. For instance, Hinduism. While other religions contain only a single one, Judaism, Islam although the single one may have several or numerous facets or aspects. For instance, in Christianity, we have the Trinity God with three aspects, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Single essence, but three manifestations. Just because a God image is one of many in a pantheon makes it no less symbolic and cos cosmic, however. That is, no less a representation of the self and not the ego. Some God images are highly abstract and theological, having been refined by many intent minds that have created a consensual and dogmatic image. This is true for Christianity. The, the image of the Trinity, God as Trinity, was hammered out at church councils over a number of centuries until an agreement was reached. Uh, so a lot of people were involved in getting it right, and there were all kinds of philosophical disputes about... Uh, various points of that dogmatic image. Uh, and so it's quite abstract. In fact, Jung asked his father when he was a young boy, tell me about the Trinity, and his father said, well, that's one item of theology that I never could quite understand, so don't spend too much time on it. It's too abstract and, and mathematical. And Jung's father was no dummy. He had a, a doctorate in Semitic languages from a great German university, and had studied deeply uh, his, the uh, uh, theological background of the Bible, and he was stumped by the doctrine of the Trinity. At least he couldn't explain it to his 14-year-old rebellious son. Uh, maybe that was the problem. 
Now, other god images are visual and concrete. And this is certainly the case with the Greek and Egyptian religions. They're very, uh, the stories about them, the images of them uh, are very visual. And you can still see some of these in the old monuments and, uh, and uh, now rather uh, decrepit uh, sites in Greece and, and Crete and Egypt and Sicily and places like that. If you visit these old temples, it's still very impressive. Um, and in some religious traditions, the gods have remained very concrete uh, to this day, and they're still held up as sacred. For instance, in Shinto, in Japan, you, if you walk around Japan in the gardens, you will see uh, ropes tied around stones, and that means that's a sacred stone. The god lives in that stone. And... Uh, you might not be able to see the god, but the stone is very concrete, or a tree. <clears throat> Whether abstract or concrete, however, a god image is a numinous symbol that captures and conveys an intuition or a feeling of awe-inspiring, absolute, cosmic, eternal being. It's being with a capital B. As symbols, these images communicate and mediate a dimension of being that lies beyond the confines of humanly perceived boundaries of time and space. In Paul Tillich's fine phrase, they represent the ground of being. So they're like the invisible ground behind manifest being, being itself. And so it's an intuition that there is something absolute behind what we experience as temporal and in flux. Now I will give two examples of a God image. The first is a literary one from the Bible. And the second one is a psychic one from an orally reported dream of a contemporary woman. These images are about 2,000 years apart, in other words. Okay, so this is the one from the Bible. It's from the book of Revelations. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian. And around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are twenty-four elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with a face like a human face. And the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and inside. 
day and night without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Then I heard every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. And this powerful example, which is a classic image from the foundational document of Christianity, <coughs> the Bible, one clearly recognizes the essential features of a God image. There is numinosity, that is, awesome power, wonder, fear on the part of the human observer who is writing the text. Secondly, it's absolute, that is, ultimate ontological, it has absolute ultimate ontological standing. There's no question about its permanence and its ultimacy. And third, it has cosmic proportions. Now the book of Revelation states that this image was presented to the author in a vision. This vision includes many familiar marks of quotation from the earlier biblical tradition but this doesn't disqualify it from being a bona, bona fide vision. That is a spontaneous manifestation of the unconscious. Sometimes pe people uh, dismiss their visions or active imaginations by thinking, oh, that's just something I read or experienced in a movie or saw the day before. But the unconscious has picked that up and is using it. And so it's still genuinely psychic material because you know many things, you've seen many things, and the unconscious has picked that particular thing to, uh, or image to present to you. So never dismiss those just because they're familiar. Uh, the recipient of the vision was obviously steeped in biblical tradition, and his unconscious contains these contents, but they are combined and presented in a novel fashion, and they contain new material. It's therefore a new revelation that's presented uh, in this text. Its symbolic nature is evident, moreover, not only because it contains familiar biblical symbolic images, such as the four living creatures, uh, which is an allusion to Ezekiel's vision in the Old Testament, but also because it gazes into the very heart of the Mysterium Tremendum, to which all genuine religious symbols point. A God image attempts to capture all that it can 
of the noumenal, that is, essentially hidden and invisible God, of God as God is in him, her, itself, of ultimate reality. In this vision, recorded according to tradition by the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, we find a symbol of the ultimate as presented to a human consciousness some 2,000 years ago. So now jumping over two millennia, which is a long jump indeed, uh, I will present a dream as told to me by a woman. Uh, this woman is in her early 60s. She's a person not especially religious in a traditional or even in a non-traditional sense, but she's spiritual, we would say, highly sensitive to archetypal images of the collective unconscious, to use the Jungian jargon. Some people are just very sensitive to that level and have big dreams and manifestations. She therefore, uh, she is therefore what I would term a spiritual rather than a religious person. Usually, you know, that distinction is made. Religious people are in a tradition. They practice the tradition. They are uh, devoted to the tradition. They are religious. They go to church a lot and they are affiliated. Uh, a spiritual person, uh, in modern times at least, isn't necessarily a religious person. They're often outside the religious traditions, but they have access to what religious traditions also have access to, these powerful uh, symbolic images and experiences. <clears throat> so here's her dream. I find myself in a large throng of people who are milling around, moving slowly from one area to another as though at a garden party. Gradually I become aware of a strange thing happening. Close to the ground and around our feet, a powerful charge of energy is moving rapidly through our midst. It dawns on me that this energy has a form and that it is moving continuously among the people in a figure eight. I see it, I see that it is an enormous snake. The snake's beautiful face appears to me. It has the head of a woman. The enormous body of the snake is covered with white orchids that are growing out of her. She confronts me. Her giant face comes near. Her dark eyes fix me in a stare. And of course, I'm afraid. Beyond the fear, though, I feel tremendous awe and wonder at this marvelous and remarkable being. Who are you, she demands of me. What do you do? I give my name and tell her that I am a psychotherapist. Oh, so you are an architect of souls, she replies. I'm surprised at this designation and listen further. The snake goes on. You are like Julius Caesar, and she names some other historical characters whom I cannot recall after I awaken. She must see the look of astonishment on my face because she goes on to say, of course you could not know that Julius, you could not know that Julius Caesar was an architect of souls in a much earlier lifetime. 
I now understand that this snake has been around since the beginning of time. Her memory holds a record of all the souls who have ever lived and of all of their various incarnations and specific identities. Some souls have lived more than once, or even many times. I'm surprised that she has placed me in a category with Julius Caesar, and even more astonished that his underlying identity was an architect of souls. Clearly, I do not understand something important here. I'm dumbfounded and shaken to be meeting a consciousness that has been around since the universe began. For a time we simply look at each other. I admire the beautiful white orchids that cover her massive body. I also realize that she is immensely powerful and could annihilate me in an instant. But I decide to take a risk anyway, and I venture to say she now speaking to the snake, you now have an opportunity to do, to do great good. Because you are at a point in your evolution where you are on the way to becoming fully conscious. You are more than halfway there. Surprised at my boldness, I wonder how she will take this comment. But her face lights up and she smiles. This is a blessing. Great streams of energy are exuding from her. So that's the dream. Now, like the classic God image from the book of Revelation, this is a numinous symbol of the ultimate. And it portrays an image of vast power and cosmic transtemporal dimension. And this isn't the kind of thing you'd go around the streets talking about to people either. Um, unlike the biblical God image, however, this modern one exists on the earth and not up in the heavens. It's interesting to think about the differences. And it includes the notion of an evolving consciousness in the God figure itself. When she says, you are halfway there, there's the implication that the God figure is evolving consciousness, which is certainly an idea that Jung works with a lot in answer to Job. The cosmic snake does not show the quality of absolute omniscience and transcendence typical of monotheistic deities, although she does have a record of all that has happened to date in human and perhaps in cosmic history. Her consciousness is in process, however, and it's now more than halfway to completion, according to the dream ego's assessment. The claim made for the god of the monotheisms has been universally that the god image named and worshipped is omniscient and omnipotent, anything but a work in progress. <coughs> this modern god image, on the other hand, implies development of divine consciousness. History and the passage of time make a difference. Moreover, the relation between the human observer and the observed God image is also more dialogical. In other words, they have a conversation. One can hardly imagine John conversing with the one seated on the throne or with the Lamb, never mind commenting on their degree of completeness or partiality in any manner whatsoever. 
While it is certainly not correct to say that the dream ego and the serpent god image are on a par, or in any sense equals, the words of the dreamer to the god image would be unthinkable in classical religious experience where the power and consciousness differential is so much greater. So one might hazard the hypothesis, um, and this is interpretive now, this is a hermeneutic move, that ego consciousness, consciousness has gained considerable standing vis-a-vis -vis the archetypal self in the last 2,000 years. This same increased standing of the ego in relation to a God image is represented in Jung's highly controversial book, Answer to Job, where in a number of famous passages, Jung takes Yahweh to task for his lack of consciousness. So to answer the question posed earlier, um, what is a God image? We can conclude that it is a psychic, psychic image that captures an important aspect of the archetypal self. Presented to the ego, a God image offers it the benefit of an archetypal symbol which mediates between the ego and the self. And the connecting link between the ego and the self, the so-called ego-self axis in our terminology, is made up of God images. The ego-self axis is made up, constituted by God images. And this is critically important to recognize for the psychology of religion as it is for the therapy of souls. People use God images to establish a relationship to the self, uh, whether you do that within a traditional setting using a traditional God image, an icon, praying to a statue <coughs> of the Virgin, as I've seen done in, profoundly in Catholic churches in, in South America by simple people, uh, or whether you use a dream image as, as a symbolic representation to relate to the self really makes very little practical difference. You are doing the same thing. You're establishing a relationship to what Jung called the self or what religious people would call God. Activities like prayer and contemplation in religious life have a profound psychological value. When people pray, it, it, it has, it's very important for their souls and maybe for the people they pray for even. You know, there, even some studies have shown that the value of that, uh, empirical studies on the effectiveness of praying for sick people, for instance. But for the soul that prays, it certainly has a profound meaning and a psychological value. Alternatively, activities like active imagination in the Jungian approach are exactly equivalent to prayer in traditional contexts. And when people do practice active imagination, uh, as we sometimes teach them to do in classes here at the Institute, or analysts will coach their uh, analysands to do some active imagination. It's, uh, it's uh, the equivalent of what uh, religious people do when they learn to pray deeply. Uh, 
A difference might be that in active imagination, the images often speak back to you, whereas in the religious context, that doesn't always happen, although it does sometimes. You know, when people would pray to statues, the statue would begin to cry or would nod its head or react in some way or communicate back. They're doing act, what we call active imagination. And uh, what we're doing when we do active imagination is what they would call praying. We're praying. Um, so there are, um, uh, and, and, the, and the purpose of that is to establish this link between the empirical ego, the everyday human consciousness, and something vastly beyond itself that has uh, transcendence and, and absoluteness and cosmic standing. So we link to the cosmos through God images. Okay, so I've given you my answer for what a God image is. Uh, shall we have a little discussion and then take a brief pause before we go on? Anybody want to say something? I have a question about the, yeah. the, the, the woman, the therapist, who was yeah. speaking about the, the snake, reporting her, her dialogue with the snake. How did she refer to the snake again? You... Just the way she, I mean, I just took this. Always the snake, or did she use a personal pronoun? She. 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 It's a she. Yeah, it's a she. It's a feminine image. It has a face of a woman. It's on the ground, growing orchids out of its body. It's sort of an earth spirit. <clears throat> and the uh, classical God image is one usually thinks of God in heaven, you know, up above. But there are earth gods too, and goddesses, and daimons, and so on. Yeah. I noticed when you were describing the Revelations image that there was so much more detail <clears throat> around the throne rather than in the throne. Yeah, it's, uh, you can't like it was a, see empty what's in there. Lightning, thunder, but yeah. So, yeah, so, and I just thought in contrast to the snake that's the, the center face is, is there. there. You know, they're face to face. <laughs> the one seated there looks like Jasper and Carnelian, so you oh. get these images of uh, precious stones. Oh, that's okay. okay. But you don't, uh, you don't get a face per se. Yeah, and of course, human either. God in the Bible is not supposed to be represented, humanized, anthropomorphized, yeah. or anything. It's, so I, I think that's part of the tradition that you don't. You see what's around there, human figures around the stone, around the throne. Yes? But why, based on that statement, why is God always portrayed as like this male image? Isn't always. I mean, frequently. I was being raised a Lutheran, you always were this image of this older man sitting on a throne, long white hair. It was always a white male, and it was this. And right, it was yeah. Kind of like embedded in us. Partly that's your culture and pictures you see in Sunday school and so on. If you read the Bible, you don't actually get a picture like that of God. Uh, but it is a he, definitely, in the Bible. I mean, at least in our translations we use, which I think are pretty accurate. You know, Yahweh, a God in the Bible, is a father God, a warrior God, a father God, sort of male energy, masculine. So we, we speak of it as a patriarchal tradition. Uh, there are other religions that have a variety. Greek religion, for instance, had more or less an equivalent number of goddesses, although the, the dominant figure was Zeus. Um, it, was, it was also a patriarchal religion, but a little more spread out. The power was distributed a bit. 
and in Egyptian religion, out of which, you know, that context, Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and so on, there were a variety of gods. But monotheism was beginning to form. So the sense that there is a god beyond these gods, you know, that there is a power beyond these images, was an intuition. that Images wear out after a while. You know, after you worship them for hundreds or thousands of years in some cases, they, don't, they aren't so effective anymore. So then you... We'll get into that a little later. You you might find another one or one that's behind it that's more powerful. And that began happening in Egyptian religion. There was a movement toward monotheism. And then, of course, the Bible is radically monotheistic, uh, even though at the beginning some other figures are mentioned. Um, but fundamentally, it's there's one God above all others, far more powerful than the others if there are any others. And you aren't supposed to make any images of him, but it is a him. It's a father. So it may represent the tribal structures where the father was dominant and kind of ruled the scene, you know. And in modern life, at least uh, contemporary times, that's not nearly as much the case. When I went to divinity school at Yale in the 1960s, there were, I think, 10% of the students were female at that time, and they were training to become Sunday school, uh, heads of Sunday school, uh, what do you call it, Christian education directors, not to be ordained particularly, maybe a few. But now I think over 50%, maybe 60% or more are women, they're all planning to be ordained. So in those few years, 35 years, it's been a tremendous change in sensibility in, in Protestantism, at least, and a lot of pressure on Catholic institutional life as well to upgrade the role of the feminine, the role of women. And, and with them, of course, they bring another set of values, another set of images, uh, and, and then a lot of discussion from outside Christian circles, uh, from anthropology, archaeology, and so on, discoveries of uh, uh, goddess religions, you know, suddenly came to the fore. And uh, in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of talk about that, the great goddess. Uh, Eric Neumann wrote about in the 50s, yes. Well, I know Carolyn Stevens did her thesis on the necessity of the feminine image of the divine for the development of the psyche of a woman. Yes. And I wondered if you could talk about how there's a, a series of images, um, we're talking about a series of God images connecting to the self. How, what's the relationship of the animus to that? Yeah, for a woman, the animus has to get out of the way. He can lead a ways. For instance, Jesus can be a very important uh, um, guide to the self for a woman. But if the if the male figure gets too much in the way, so that the, this was Carolyn's thesis, and she gets it from a, a sentence or two in Jung. Um, I advised her thesis, actually. I know exactly how she worked on it, and that was a great discovery. It's in a, one of Jung's essays in volume nine. I forget which one, the archetype of the mother, I think. And Jung says that the animus can block the way to a self for a woman. And in patriarchal religions, that often happens because you end up with a male figure and you can't get beyond the male figure because that male figure is the ultimate. So Jung suggests 
he needs to be put to the side or lead the way to another figure for a woman so that there is a, an ability to connect directly to some, someone who represents your deepest uh, sense of self. And uh, in the tradition, this has sort of taken place on the side, in, in Catholicism at least, the Virgin Mary and the other women, <coughs> important women in the tradition have functioned, maybe not officially, but uh, very powerfully to mediate to God who maybe remains invisible, but the, the primary connecting link was through these female figures. Well, then the second part of the question is, how would that work with both mother and father God? In other words, if yeah. people are androgynous in a sense, and they have an image of the divine feminine and the masculine. Yeah, well, it would be... Um, This is what Jung was basically putting forward, the idea of a God image that is uh, uh, a union of opposites, as he called it, unio oppositorum. And the masculine, feminine, and good and evil, those were the two polarities that he thought were so problematic in Western religion, would be brought together somehow in a single God image. Now that might have to be quite abstract, like a mandala, or, you know, not represented in a human figure. But that, that's what he was really reaching for, something beyond, beyond the polarities, but that include and, and, and include the polarities and are made up of the polarities. So you, it isn't like you're transcending them, but you're, you're uh, including them. And so then the images could be actually they could be almost anything. Yeah. It works for you. Yeah. It works for you. Yes, back there. Uh, we're taking along to that, how that happens in an ordinary and, you know, woman's life. Let's just start out there. I'm wondering, you know, when you said setting aside, you know, to set aside a male image, or what, what happens typically is you really have to reject it because sort of laying out the program for the day. <laughs> we'll get to it, but uh, I, I only wouldn't want to make it too, sound too programmatic, like you, you can lay this out and then you know, follow the recipe, because these God images, like the one that comes in this dream, they arise pretty spontaneously. And if, if a, you know, if a, God image would come to you in a dream or in a, in a visionary experience uh, that, that had happened to have a, a masculine quality to it, uh, uh, you know, that's just what your psyche is presenting right then. 
and you know maybe that's what you need at that moment you know so you want to always kind of keep an openness to surprise and to um, let the unconscious uh, take the lead in these things and then to interpret it and, and kind of try to understand where it's going yeah you mentioned Norman and um, as you were talking, I was at the range of the snack. I was thinking of um, editors, mystery um, editors, who talks about um, the Neumann's phases of um, yeah. development of collective consciousness and relates that to alchemy. <clears throat> and in one part, he's quoting Dorn. He talks about after the person has the full life and moves into the have into individuation. There are three Kenoshios, and the first is the um, which is the separation away from the spirit and soul. And that kind of reminded me of the snake image from the present the body of being separate from maybe the, the spirit being the masculine and maybe that's part of the separating or differentiating or yeah. You could put it into that kind of a framework, I think, yeah. uh, or you can also see it um, as a as a complementary image to the sky god spiritual father image, yeah, and uh, that they don't replace one another, but they complement each other, or you know, and evolve toward a, perhaps a uh, unio you know, further down the line, another conjunctio, yeah. Why don't we take a little break and then we'll come back and take up the question, what does a God, why does a God image change? This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thank you to the 2020 donors who gave at the supporting member level and above. Barbara Anand, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Jackie K. Bryan, Eric Cooper, Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, James Fidelibus, John Koroluski, Marty Manning, Diane Sherwood, Deborah P. Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, Karen West, and James Taylor, and Ellen Young. Thank you to everybody else who gave at that level but wishes to remain anonymous. If you can support us, please do. It really means a lot. Thanks.